Uh, the title of this sermon is taken from a book by Rosemarie Miller, Jack Miller's widow, entitled uh, From Fear to Freedom. And so I love this title, Delivered from Fear to Freedom, as I relate it to David and Goliath. Research will tell you it's the most, it's arguably the most famous underdog story there is. When you hear of David and Goliath, you usually think of a situation where a smaller or weaker opponent faces a, a much larger one, a much bigger and stronger enemy. And as we read this text, the crucial question is, after hearing all of the stories about David and Goliath and David and Goliath, what is the main point of this story? And sadly, many Christians, I think, misinterpret this narrative and do not stress its proper accent. And so if you don't lean into the text, you will end up bringing up all kind of takeaways like facing the giants in your life and victory over your giants and all the other ad nauseum uh, books and articles on this text. Christian, you and I must protect ourselves from such deafness to this text. And one such protection is to note where a story or a narrative talks about God. And when the story is about God, it's really about who? It's about God. So the David and Goliath story is about God. And that is the, the orientation of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, and, and the way he, he speaks of Goliath, it, it helps us to see him for who he really is. He's really not this big old enemy that we think he is. He is someone who dishonors the Almighty God. Now, a friend of mine, Richard Pratt, and I, I believe him, uh, he says, and I've studied it, he says Israel should hope in David's royal line despite the troubles caused by David's shortcoming. He says, when you read 1 Samuel 17, that's what you should think about. Remember David. Now, David wasn't perfect, but David was a man after what? God's own heart. He was the model king. And if the kings lived like David, Israel would be blessed. If they didn't live and believe like David, Israel will experience the curses from God. And so what these writers in 1 and 2 Samuel do, it's, it looks like propaganda because in chapter 16 beginning at verse 2 all the way to verse, uh, chapter 18, you see this rising of David's character and this spiraling downward of Saul morally and spiritually. So David's rising and Saul is just fizzling out. He's just, he's going from bad to worse to worst. And David is becoming good, better, and best. And they contrast these two men over 11 times. And so as Paul read the text, we, we see the story and it opens with, with Israel's army and King Saul is the commander-in-chief and they're in the valley of Elah. And they introduce Goliath. And he makes quite a bit of, a, of an impression, doesn't he? He is nine feet, 10 inches and change. That's, I am six foot two, Paul is six foot four. He is nine feet, he is bigger than Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> he is bigger than Dirk Nowitzki. Nine feet, 10 and three quarter inches and he wears heavy metal. Some of you listen to heavy metal, but he wore heavy metal. 
he, his armor was 200 pounds of bronze. That's what he wore all around him to protect him from fight. And his, his, uh, his spear, the, the head of his spear was 24 pounds. The tip of the spear was 24 pounds. I mean, I mean a, spear, a spear this size could do untold damage to anybody, but his own is 24 pounds. This might be 24 ounces. He's an imposing figure. And so the writer ensures that when you read this story, you, you walk away with this, this sense of awe as he gives this line-upon-line description of Goliath's armor and his weapons. And then in verse 8 through 10, we see Goliath is bragging and he's bellowing for a challenger to take him on one-on-one. -on -one. That's confidence. No one had any problems here in Goliath. King Saul and the army of Israel heard him, and the writer said, they became very afraid and very dismayed, very confused. Wait a minute, we're the people of God, and the enemy is this big, and God expects us, Jerry, to go into the world and do what? And preach the gospel? And our enemy is, is ginormous. We become easily become dismayed and greatly afraid, like King Saul. By the way, he is a perfect study of poor leadership in ministry. He rejected the biblical principle found in Deuteronomy 20 and verse 1. Listen to this. Here's what God told Moses to tell the children of Israel. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you and brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Remember. By the way, that's one of those commands in Scripture that's, that's plenteous. It's a lot of, it's a, I mean on numerous occasions. I can't tell you the exact figure, but it's one of the most common words in the Bible. Remember. Don't forget. And so King Saul is the people's choice, and he led God's people into battle. And for 40 days, morning and evening, he is allowing this Philistine goon to defy God's character unchallenged. I mean, how do you feel when people say things about Jesus in the food stores or on the TV or wherever you go? I mean, you get this... You want to, let me at him, let me at him, I hope. But Saul, it all went unchallenged, and consequentially, men of war in Israel became fearful. They began to doubt God's promises, and they forgot them, and they resorted to silence while hoping for the best. Saul viewed Goliath from the outside when he should have, like David, seeing the giant from the inside. And that's the thrust of 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. I, God says, I do not look at you from the outside because it's, it, it, it's, I look at you from the inside. And Jesus says, it's not what comes, it's not what goes into you that makes you, it's what comes out of you. It's what's on the inside. And so, David is introduced in verse 12 of this text. And we read the story about the giant and you come away with a, with a genuine sense of relief because you see the words, now David. 
And then now David's continue in verse 14 and 15, and the whole section follows David step by step until the shepherd boy is at the front lines delivering cheese and bread, and he hears the brute from God. Had David's father, Jesse, only known how, how critical David's mission would be, I think you are beginning to realize how critical the mission of mission is. That's why you sent me. That's why you are sending Jerry. That's why you send so many people. That's why you support so many people. That's why you pray for us. Because you're beginning to realize that it's a serious mission. Jesse didn't realize that. But it's all low-key and natural. Everything seemed to be so casual. Yet those things which seemed most casual were really linked in a proverbial chain leading to the gravest of issues. And then David's there, and we know what happened. The giant spoke one too many times. He should have, should have been quiet. And he spoke up. And David heard him. You know the rest of the story because David is a man who knew how to get ahead, amen? David knew how to get ahead in life. And Goliath spoke up. Casual, natural. Phillips Brooks, who wrote the, the, the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, he says, uh, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift was given. Unlike the army of Israel, David's reaction to Goliath's threat was quite the correct response for one whose confidence is in the living God. I mean, if you're afraid, I, I understand if you're afraid. You go and you stay silent, you go in your corner. But if your confidence is in the God who has delivered you from all your sins, I understand your reaction. And that's what happened to David. He wanted to know what would be in it for him should he take the risk of fighting this giant. But that's not the whole question because in verse 26 of this text, in the, in the second portion, notice his question. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And that's the key word in this text, defy. It's found six times in this passage. And that's your homework. You look for it. Six times it's there. Defy, mock, deride, reproach. David, in this moment of the story, is the first one to inject a spiritual and a theological note into the narrative. More importantly, this is the first time that David is quoted in, in the Bible. Up to this point, he was a literary mute. Now, we know that there are some people who talk obsessively about, you know, commenting on things they don't need commenting on and reacting to things that don't need reaction. And then there are those of us, not me, but there are those of you who have the strong, silent type. Those who are not particularly bashful, but who simply do not thrive on hearing yourselves. Whenever people like you speak in some discussion or on some issue, the, the rest of us are likely to pay careful attention to what you have to say. Because we expect your words to be important. They carry much weight. And that's why David's words in verse 26 
Who is this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine who defied the armies of the living God? His words are heavier than Goliath's armor. David's words pierces the silence. It breaks the silence in the valley. And David, a boy among men, brings a whole new different worldview to the situation. Up to this point, the narrative had been godless. The only quotation came from Goliath's defiance and mocking of God and Israel's fear of him and the armies of the Philistines. But now, David, Israel's rising king, injects the godly question into the story. Doesn't having a living God as your deliverer make a difference in all of this? The Lord used David to orchestrate a major paradigm shift and God's man spoke out. This imposing Philistine had mocked the ranks of the living God, according to David. And Israel's true defender is not King Saul. Israel's defender is none other than the sovereign of the universe. Your God is not your job. Your God is not anything else but the one who declared himself to be the true and only God who has come to this earth. David must have thought that, it, that if Yahweh is so identified, if God is so identified with his covenant people, do you think God is indifferent towards such mischaracterizations? Do you expect a living God to allow a puny pagan to trample his glorious name in mud? All Israel thought that the Philistine giant was invulnerable. But as far as David was concerned, Goliath was only an uncircumcised dog. Unlike Saul, David applied the principle of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. He didn't look at the size of the dog in the fight. He looked at the size of the fight in the dog. Faith in the true and living God gives us a whole new perspective of things. How about you? Really, how big is your problem when compared to the immensity and wisdom of your heavenly Father? How big is your problem? Stack your problem up against the the, the character and the weight of who God is and all that he says. So David's question, I must admit, is not a silver bullet for solving every challenges that you face. But it should surely instruct you and me. It should show us how crucial it is to hold the right starting point. That we raise the right questions from the very beginning of our ordeals, even if we are in a storm. Christian, I want you to remember that you have been rescued by the finished works of Christ Jesus. And that's your justification. You're justified freely forever. God declares you righteous, has no problem with you. Okay? And then your sanctification is a process which requires Christ-centered, God-honored thinking. The tragedy for you and I is that if others were to hear our thoughts, and our words in our dark nights of the soul, they would react just as Goliath and the Philistine cohorts did. They would never guess that we have a living God. Worse, some of us, especially when we feel wrong by others, and even by God, tend to sound like Goliath. 
defying the all-wise, all-powerful, loving God. And so this God-centered thinking led David to God-centered conviction. David said, man, I can't let him get away with this. And this led him to, this compelled him to God-centered action. And we know the story. David got five smooth stones. We learned that Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> David could account five of them. I need five stones. And he threw that stone in his sling because David remembered he'd kill a lion and a bar, as you say here in Texas. And he knew that the God who delivered the lion in his hands could deliver this Philistine dog. And so he threw, the rock found its aim, and we know Goliath fell. David cut his head off, and thanks to Ron Williams early this morning, David took the head to Jerusalem, 12 to 14 miles away. And he didn't Uber. He walked <laughs> with his head. And he just left it in, in, in Jerusalem. Okay? He defeated Goliath. And the army of Israel became encouraged, and they benefited greatly from David's surprising victory. That's a great story. So how does it apply, how does it apply to us today? Well, remember, this book was written to a specific group of people. It wasn't written to you and me, okay? First and second Samuel wasn't written to you and me. God was thinking of us, but the writers weren't thinking of us, okay? They were thinking of those people who lived around that time. But it was written for us. You with me? It was written for us. And the, the, the theme is, you got to be like David to really experience the blessings of God. And we know historically, no king of Israel was like David. So Israel suffered and suffered and suffered. But there was a king who was unlike David, but like David. David was a man after God's own heart. But the king we are talking about is the one who literally came from the bosom of the father, who's literally the heart of God. And so the good news for you and me today is that we have David's royal son, even Christ Jesus. And, and we desperately need to understand that Yahweh's blessings come to us now in Christ because of the victory Christ did. As a believer, I want to remind you that you are chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. You have been adopted as his dearly beloved child and children. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ Jesus, the Son. You have been justified freely by His grace, set apart positionally and set apart continuously for God's eternal glory by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And all of these blessings are yours because you are in Christ. So when you read this famous story, you need to see the rise of God's rightful King, the son of David, the anointed one, ascending to the throne of his father David. Which brings me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. That's the connection between the two. So, Acts, so 1 Samuel 17 and verse 26, the silence is broken. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, there's a silence. There was silence in Israel for, all, for about 400 years. After Malachi, God just stopped speaking to them. God wasn't upset with them, wasn't angry with them. Sin had put a barrier between them. And there was silence, no prophet. And then one day there was, this, there was this man dressed in camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey. And he said, hey, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And Mark says he came. And, and Jesus says, and, and Mark doesn't, 
tell the birth of Jesus. He just introduces this young man. And in verse 15, he says, the time has been fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. He breaks the silence. Just how David broke the silence in the valley, Jesus broke the silence. He brought the promised Holy Spirit to us. He brought good news to the poor. He brought power to set captives free, especially from that which terrorizes you and me. He brought power to confront all your enemies and defeat all who oppose you. He had the power over your worst enemy, even death. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ has come to us. He enters the valley of fear and doubt with us and his message to you and me that we ought to repent. We ought to turn away from living in fear and doubt and believe in him alone. You see, he knows that you're in the valley of decision. He knows that your enemies seem to be quite imposing. And that's terrifying to you. It's kept you silent. I mean, some of our enemies, they, they are loud. They write in the newspapers, they blog, and, they, and they're on the TV screen, and they're in the movies, and they're all over the place, and they, and they look imposing. And you ask yourself, well, what could I do? Our Savior knows that you're in a battle for your very existence. Yet he says to you and me, fear not, for I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so what's this story really about? And I wrap it up right now. Today, some of you need to see yourselves as King Saul and his army of Israel. You need to see yourself cowering in silence because of fear and doubt. You need to remember what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. You need to remember. Equally sad but true is that there are others in this room who tend to behave just like Goliath. You're angry at God, often because you feel that you've been wronged by the Lord and or his people. Trials sometimes make us bitter. Bitter towards others and worse, bitter towards the all-wise, all-powerful, ever-loving God. And so Jesus says to you and me as he enters the valley and he breaks the silence and he says to you, Repent. Change your way of thinking. Change your way of living. And I'll give you the grace to believe. Because you're either afraid or you're defiant. And you're not honoring him. And his honor is at stake. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we urgently need to identify with the one who has tasted death on our behalf all by himself. The one who became sin for us. We urgently need to realize that our only hope is resting on the faith of Christ Jesus, the son of David. And so he commands us to surrender to him. And he says, let me take you by the hand. Let me lead you out of the valley onto the streets of the Via Dolorosa. Let me lead you to Golgotha's hill. The Skull Hill, by the way. Thanks, Ron Williams. Where an enemy more sinister and more deadly than Goliath was thoroughly defeated. Jesus defeated sin. 
And he says to you, let me lead you to Joseph's new tomb. Don't stop there and gaze. Follow me all the way to the right hand of the Father where you'd see me seated on the throne of grace. And if you hang with me, you will find strength. There you will find help. There you will discover that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. The mighty Goliath has been beheaded. He's been utterly crushed by the weight of grace and love. And so this preacher from the islands asks you to come out of the valley and rejoice with he who has broken the silence forever. Leave your fears behind and live in the freedom that he has won for you single-handedly because he loves you. In Jesus' name, amen.